to John's credit, I still look like an Easter basket, so we're still in good standing. See, if I take, if I get the jokes out, and, and if I'm in front of the jokes, I can't ever really get made fun of. That's, that's kind of how that works. Okay, Jamie. All right. Uh, but like I said, this morning we're going to continue here. Uh, the book of Philippians, we're in chapter 3, and I want us to look at verses 3 through 8. Um, 7 and 8, we're not going to touch on too much. We'll kind of double up a little bit with verses 7 and 8 next week as we move forward. Um, a few past that. So I want to look at verses 3 through 6 primarily, but I want us to just uh, quickly recap where we were from last week. Here Paul continues to write to them, and he, he mentions at the very beginning of chapter 3, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And then he writes in verse 2, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Um, and I said how this week we're going to talk a little bit more about what it is in verse 3. We're noticing distinctions that are being made by Paul as he is contrasting those who are evildoers, who are the concision, compared to what we see in verse 3 of the true circumcision. Again, a true contrast of those, um, even those that may appear to be within the church, of those who are evildoers with those who are truly believers, uh, which gets us into our text. And I want to read verses 3 through 8 of Philippians chapter 3. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So I want us to stop and see all the context as we're going to go through. We're going to get all the way through uh, the rest of verse 8 um, next week on the way through verse 10. But we're going to notice a lot of different things there. He rattles off a big list, and we're going to walk through uh, some of that list here. Uh, but before we get into that, let's pray. Gracious God, we uh, come before you again this morning in this time to to seek your word, to study it, to to bring about change in our life as we see the truth of your word. We thank you that we have a a place to come and to gather together. We ask that you would be present in this time. We thank you that we're able to... Uh, Come not just alone, but also with, with other believers here. God, we praise you, and we ask that you would uh, receive all the glory and honor in this time. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting off in the introduction of, of verse 3, Paul writes, We are the true circumcision, for we are the circumcision. Uh, he's going to show the reasoning for why some are evildoers and why it is that those he is writing to are true believers. Uh, some of this we touched on, again, a little bit within the Sunday school. But in the following verses, he is going to actually uh, make this case. Verse 4, and we'll go back to verse 3. We're going to kind of bounce around within these few verses. It says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh, I 
more. He is going to move from the general into his own life. Now, he's talking about confidence in the flesh, and I want to stop and make sure that we understand. He is not taking any boasting. He is not going to be boasting in the flesh. And I read the text at the beginning so that we see this very clearly. He is not saying, well, if you think you can boast in it, I can do it so much more because I am Paul and I am greater than each and every one of you. He is going to make the case that even with all of these things, it is absolutely meaningless. So he walks through these different verses and is going to give his resume in verses 5 and 6. But what he notes in verse 3 is, for we are the circumcision. Again, he is writing to a Christian church. He is writing to those who were under some oppression from Judaizers who said, hey, yes, that whole grace and gospel of Christ thing, that's great. Uh, you've received Christ by grace through faith. That sounds awesome and that's cool. But unless you have been circumcised and unless you apply all of these Jewish standards and regulations to all of that, then you don't have enough. So they were taking all of the grace and then throwing law on top of it. Now, I know for many of us here, we say, okay, we understand grace. We understand the errors with so many of this. Uh, and as we walk through and see that for many of them, the issue with circumcision, he is going to move past that in so many of these different ways. But first, we have to understand uh, the importance of circumcision. We know all the way back in Genesis 17, as the covenant is made with Abraham, the sign of the covenant was what? You guys are whispering the right answers. Say them out loud, boldly. Circumcision, okay? Remember, Martin Luther said, if you're going to sin, sin boldly, okay? So if you're not sure of the answer, be wrong flagrantly, okay? It's okay. One of the signs was going to be uh, circumcision. And so in Leviticus, we see uh, chapter 12, verse 3, required circumcision on the eighth day for male children. This was an external, an exterior sign of being a part of the covenant community was the sign of circumcision for the male children in that time. Now, what happened was, though that was a sign of the covenant, as time went on, as generations passed, it began to get muddy to where people believe, started to say, hey, as long as you are just circumcised, you are absolutely saved, that that was something necessary for salvation, that, hey, all you have to do um, is receive circumcision, and then you are absolutely going to be good to go. Uh, he originally designated this again as a sign of his covenant and thinking of it, this is the promise of the offspring or people. But they, they quickly started to muddy the waters forgetting what exactly this was going to signify. Where even in circumcision itself is highlighting the, their in, innate need for cleansing. That they, they needed to have something that is to be cut off. That they needed to be cleansed from these things. And how quickly we know the people of Israel trusted in an outward sign for the test of their salvation. Now today, this is not exactly the same thing. We don't always trust, and we're not trusting in circumcision for our salvation, saying we have to do this in order to be saved. But now it gets muddied with, well, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. If you haven't been baptized, and further yet, if you haven't been baptized in this specific way, you're not you're not saved. This is necessary for salvation. You also hear, well, you have to be going to church. If you go to church, as long as you have the external action of being in front of other people at church on the Lord's day, you're, you're going to have salvation. They start. We put external metrics on so many different parts and so many different things in order to receive 
salvation? What about morals? As long as you are outwardly moral, then you'll receive salvation. There's a whole host and world of people that believe the things that they do externally are going to bring them to salvation, whether it is baptism, whether it is church attendance, whether it is just simply being a moral people, they place all of their trust in an external, outward sign of things. And Paul is going to largely refute what it is that is going on against this church. So therefore, he goes through, for we are the circumcision, we are the people of God, we are the true children of promise here, not just those that commit this action. And then he describes what that looks like, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. The Christian does not base their confidence and their hope of redemption and salvation in the outward things, in the confidence in the flesh, simply in the things that we do, which is largely in contrast to what he is going to be arguing against here. And then in verse 4, he does something that I love. He says, but... If you think you have confidence in the flesh, he's going over and using their standards, their metrics for all of these things, saying, great, so let's say that this really is the standard. If that is your level for confidence, I have far more reason to be confident than any of those of his opponents. And he's going to list out this resume here. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. Again, as we said, Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, required this for the eighth day for male children. So he even says here, look, I fulfilled this requirement. I am going to perfectly fulfill each and every part of what it is that you were supposed to be. Uh, many of the Philippians were Gentiles. They were not Jewish um, converts to Christianity in so many ways. They were Gentile Christians. And if you're familiar again with the history of Gentiles and Jews, it was not always very favorable. Uh, they were not best friends. There was a lot of tension. There was a lot of back and forth. Remember last week we talked about here Paul is saying beware of dogs. This was used by them in opposition of each other, criticizing the other, calling each other dogs. And this does not mean calling someone friendly. Uh, this was very, do not encourage you to call anybody else a dog. Okay, this is a very, uh, very rude and very harsh thing to have said. But Paul here is going to make the case again. Well, let me give you my resume. If you are saying that all of this is to be done in the flesh, let me just list out to you exactly who I am. Because I am not just some Gentile person who is now a Christian who is going to be coming in saying these things. Um, I didn't get circumcised when I became a Christian when I was an adult. I am fulfilling all of these things that you are putting so much stock in. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. So here he even says, he is of the people of Israel. If you remember the flow of the physical descendants that come from Abraham, remember the Jews were locked into who Abraham was, right? Everything was all about Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. That you had to be a physical, a literal descendant of Abraham. But here, by him saying, of the people of Israel, he is making it clear he is a descendant, not just of Abraham, but also of Isaac and of Jacob. Because you could have been a descendant of Abraham, but come through Ishmael. Ishmael was not the one uh, through which the covenant was going to continue. As well as we understand Isaac had the two sons. We have Jacob and Esau. Was the promise through Jacob or through Esau? Jacob's. You guys are, you guys are catching on. Okay, it's beautiful. Okay, 
It was going to be through Jacob. So again, for them, lineage meant everything. The physical descendant. They always go back to their tradition, to their family history. We see Jesus refuting this with the Pharisees himself as they say, well, why are you saying that to us? Are we not the children of Abraham? Everything that they believed was based on their family history and their lineage and so many of these things. So Paul is laying this out, saying, even I am a physical descendant from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not of Ishmael or Esau, but as we're going to see, we see this massive point, ethnicity is not going to bring salvation. He is taking their arguments and is going to show how ineffective and ineffectual they are in regards to salvation. That simply because you are a child of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, that does not guarantee your salvation. In the same way that just because you are born in a Christian nation with a Christian family or a family background that is Christian, that does not mean you yourself are going to be a Christian. You are not saved by your mother or your father or your husband or your wife or your children or your grandparents or their parents. There is no family salvation in things. Uh, many people take the story of the Philippian jailer where him and his whole household was saved. And they say, ha, see, the jailer was saved, and by extension, the whole house as well. Uh, that is a gross misuse of the context here. Um, parents, you have received Christ, you are a Christian. That does not guarantee the salvation of your child. That does not mean that your child is absolutely a Christian. Children, teenagers, just because you are a Christian does not then mean that your parents are absolutely a Christian as well. We don't have as much a sense of the family uh, commitment that the Jewish people did, but so often we can grow up and think, well, my parents take me to church and my parents are Christians, so therefore I too am a Christian and I believe all of these things, but we know that that is not always the case. There is no family salvation in these things. So he continues on. Because again, he's using their arguments against them as he's building his case. Not only circumcised the eighth day as was commanded, not only of the stock of Israel as was going to be required by their standards, but also of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the youngest of the sons, held a very high, high place. We see uh, most notably the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. Uh, those are my two kids, very different people. Okay. Um, Saul, Israel's first king, was of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, when the promised land was divided up, the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem, went to which tribe? Benjamin. There's a very important part of this where he is not just saying of the tribe of Benjamin, and isn't that kind of cool? This was a very critical piece. And to really flesh all of these things out, some of you are probably saying, man, you could talk about Circumcised of the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. Each one of those could be a sermon unto itself, but I'm not going to do that. I don't really think you guys would be super excited about that either. But understand that there is an incredible status that is taking place as he's lining this out. Again, he is highly esteeming his own resume, showing if you are looking simply at these things and saying this is necessary and you are taking confidence in it, I have far more reason to be confident than anybody else. And he's going to continue making this case. But yet again, we're seeing family status did not grant to Paul his own salvation. 
And out of this list right there, what are we seeing where he had anything to do with it? Zero. All of those things to this point he received by inheritance. All of these things came prior to his birth or even just by the eighth day. His family status did not factor in. The lineage of his family didn't factor in. The circumcision on the right day did not factor in. And now he's going to continue with the tradition. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Again, I'm not just some some Gentile person that is now trying to understand the Jewish culture. I'm not just this a, a Gentile following all under all of these rules. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is the idea of like a man among men. Like just woof me, basically, is what I'm trying to say. A man among Taylor, I swear. You guys think I don't see you shaking heads. That's messed up, Taylor. Right, but we understand what he's saying. A Hebrew of Hebrews. This is all the tradition, all the elements that are required or important or necessary. I've got it. This is like he was bred and made to be a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. We're very familiar with Pharisees, I think, up to this point. We understand they were the religious elites at the time, the highest religious level in all of Judaism. Again, they were looked at for everything. Uh, In this time, it was not a very popular thing. Um, Not many people were going to make the cut to be a Pharisee. Not many of us are running to sign up for all the requirements that were necessary to be a Pharisee. It was incredibly rigorous, incredibly difficult, with so many laws, rules, exceptions, all of these things to follow and to keep track of. As to the law of Pharisee, he held a central conviction as a Pharisee, as many of them did, that Jews should remain pure and distinct from Gentiles. Remember, the relationship was not very good. It was not a powerful, positive thing. It's not as if Jews and Gentiles said, hey, we just disagree on things but we can still coexist. You were not supposed to cohabitate. You weren't supposed to be friends with them. You're supposed to walk on the other side from them. Every little thing you could imagine that is hateful, wrong, things that none of you would ever want for anybody else, this is a very contentious relationship. And Paul, is, Paul as a Pharisee, would have held the conviction that Jews are not supposed to mingle with the Gentiles. So how incredible is it then that Paul... This Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews, super Jewish lineage, tradition, rules, all of this, becomes one of the primary ministers of the gospel to the Gentiles. It's an incredible change in his life. And if we don't remember his history, we're going to see this here in just a second. As to zeal, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. We're going to go audience participation again. Remember, sin boldly if you're wrong. Okay. When Paul meets Christ on the Damascus Road, where was he going and what was he going to do? Persecute the Christians. And not just like be rude and mock and yell at them. Right? He had permission to arrest them, permission to kill them. He was on his way to go and to kill Christians. This is not just a guy who says, well, I just want to go and I want to uh, make fun of Christians for what they believe. This was not just some simple thing concerning zeal. Some of us understand what zeal is. Okay, This is a supreme virtue for the Pharisee. This is a massive, powerful virtue where you love God so much 
that it changes the way that you're going to live, right? There's something, there's a holy zeal, but it often can turn into hate to where you hate those things that the Lord hates. They believe that God hated Gentiles along with Christians. So him, in his passion, in his zeal, was going to go and to kill Christians because he thought that's what God would have wanted. He was sincere. We talked at different times about sincerity and how many people believe, well, it doesn't matter which God that you worship. It doesn't matter uh, what it is that you believe about who God is as long as you are sincere. You can be a Muslim that is just sincere, and God is going to look at that, and he is going to save that person. You could be a sincere Mormon who does not worship the true and living God, but as long as you're sincere, that's okay. Or you could be a really sincere atheist, but be very moral, and God is going to look at that, and he is going to be pleased, and he is going to say, yes, because you were sincere, and he is going to grant salvation to that person. The only thing that you are is sincerely wrong, right? <laughs> so many people get caught up in the conversation of as long as you mean well, you're good. As long as you mean well. But we often see this in so many places. Paul meant well in his intentions, and he sincerely wanted to do what he thought God would have wanted, but he was incredibly wrong. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, he's saying, I loved God so much and I had so much zeal that I was on my way to kill Christians, that I was persecuting the church. How much do you have to really care about something to go out of your way to persecute or to want to go and kill another person? You have to really care. This was not just some casual passion of his. It was everything that he was. And he continues on. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. The blameless here is to reference no outstanding guilt that was not dealt with by the provisions of the law. Rigorous obedience to the law. Not perfect, but always being dealt with. And what is it after all of this resume, after all of these things? He makes these arguments. says, if you are confident in the flesh, you're trying to put these restrictions on everybody else. You're saying that Christ is not enough, that grace is not enough, that faith is not enough, that all of these things require more. If these are your standards, fine, let's go with your standards, okay? You're confident in the flesh. You're taking confidence in what you are doing in order to receive salvation. You think you alone are doing enough for it, well, let me give you my resume because I have far greater attributes in these ways than you do. I am far greater at all of these things by it. And for the person who thinks, well, Paul here is just boasting and trying to make himself better, notice what he says in verses 7 and 8. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. I want to stop and help us understand this is not as if he had attained all of these things, as if he had studied and learned all these things. Becoming a Pharisee was very difficult. A religious elite, one of the most intelligent men of his time by far. He had earned all the accolades essentially that were available to a Hebrew and to the Jewish person of the time. And he had accrued all of this over a lifelong pursuit of these things and comes to the very end of it meets Christ on that Damascus road, and all of those things he had been accruing as positives, what does he call them? Loss. 
They mean nothing to him. Now, I'm going to step out for a second and say, I'm sure many of you are not rigorously pursuing becoming a Pharisee at this time. Um, following all these different tenets, I don't think there's Hebrew of Hebrews here uh, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Okay, I don't think these are the markers that a lot of us tend to be pursuing that are currently here. But consider what people seek after each and every day. They devote and dedicate their life to accruing all of these different things to have on a resume. Their whole life is in pursuit of whether it is the job, whether it is the family, whether it is the money, whether it is the fame. Whatever the case may be, you spend the entire life in pursuit of these things. And here Paul says, yeah, I've had everything. It's worth nothing. It's loss. Later he calls it dung, scubalong. Dung, it's manure, it's waste, it's worthless. He doesn't even just call it something that's neutral. How many of us would say that dung sitting right in front of you now would be a neutral proposition? Okay, it's ridiculous. Get it out of here, I don't want it. Mildly graphic illustration, but I think we see the point. (laughs) All of these things that I had accrued were absolutely meaningless. And they weren't just lost because he realized they had no value because when is it that he finally understood that everything he had sought after in his life had no value? He counted it as loss for what? For Christ. You remember the treasure, the pearl that is in the field, the man who goes gets rid of everything in order to pursue that. This is what it is that he is going to be discussing that he continues to talk about. I had done all of these things. I had accrued all of these things. Everything was perfect for me. Then I met Christ and realized all of it was meaningless. All of it is worthless. It is dung. It does nothing for me. And I count all these things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but dung, that I may win Christ. This is not a man who has had nothing in his life, and we could say, yes, but Paul, it's very easy for you to consider things lost because you really never had anything to lose. Well, Paul, you don't understand. Uh, I haven't had all of these things. Um, So, of course, it's easy for you to say that. Paul had everything that he could have ever imagined, wanted, needed for his time, for what he believed is exactly what God had required and needed. And he says, yes, even though my resume is far greater than anyone else, it means nothing to me for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We walked through this text very, very quickly this morning. In a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table, and I want us to sit on this thought for the next two minutes. We probably don't line up super well in our culture with understanding of circumcision or of the tribe of Benjamin or of the stock of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law and being a Pharisee and whatever the case may be. But think about what it is that you are pursuing in your life that takes the precedent in each and every area, where your thoughts are devoted to it, all your time is devoted to it, all your work, all your efforts, all the conversations that you have are devoted to those things. We've talked about suffering. We've talked about sacrifice. Are there things that you will sacrifice? 
And are there things that you are holding on super tightly to? Paul here could have held on to his resume, could have held on to all of these different things, counted it all as loss, but not just because he's supposed to just lose things, because God doesn't want him to have anything, counting it as loss for Christ. But keep in mind the incredible sovereignty of God that he has this resume to minister both to the Jew as well as to the Gentile. God used an incredible purpose in Paul's life for these things. The surpassing value of knowing Christ. Would you describe there being a surpassing value in your life of knowing who Christ is? Or is it just another one of those things that you would add on to a resume as if it's the same as growing up in a Christian home? Does that surpass every other value item that you have in your life? Does that drive your time? Does it drive your conversations? Does it drive those things that you do? Or is it just a brief add-on to the end of a weekend after you've gotten off of work Friday, you've had a day off on Saturday, and the thing that you do before you plow right back into a Monday? It says, I've had it all. I've had all of these things. I had all these available opportunities to me. Uh, I was the best that there could have possibly been with all these restrictions. And guess what I found? It's all absolutely worthless. Christ is all and in all, and he is all that matters to me. And I want to read verse 9. After he says, And count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness of which is of God by faith. We often get trapped, and many Christians have bought into this lie that your righteousness and that the way that God looks at you is dependent on the things that you are going to do, that you can earn the favor of God, that you can live such a way, being moral, being good, by showing up to church enough times or by having a Christian family, that you are going to have salvation, and that you are going to be making God just so proud with the way that you live as long as you do good things. Do, 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 do. That's what Paul is laying out in his resume. Look at all these things I did. It's done. God is not impressed with religious credits. Your righteousness is not going to be found by the works that you have done. We understand from Scripture that those works that we do, apart from Christ, are filthy rags. It could be the nicest, most generous, wonderful thing that you could ever imagine, but apart from Christ, it is worthless and it is meaningless. The only righteousness is that which comes through faith in Christ, which is of God by faith. Any other restrictions, anything else, no matter how sincere or well-intended that we are, whenever we start to add on to grace, we intrinsically lose the whole meaning and the purpose of grace in the first place. Well, yeah, you need grace, but you also need to, you know, you need to do this. Well, yeah, you need grace, but if you haven't gone on a missions trip, yeah, you need grace, that's important, but if you're not doing all of these different things, if you're not praying this much, well, yeah, you, you need grace. Grace in Christ is, is good, but if you're not sharing your faith every, every two days, then and you burden down everything else, completely losing the whole meaning of grace. Stirring up people to action out of a place of burden rather than what we talk about every single Sunday school the last four weeks. Being thankful, having gratitude for what Christ has done, therefore, because of who you are, 
you do these things. All my life, I was taught and told and trained up to think that we do things because that's just what you do, not we act in accordance with who we truly are as Christians. You get a definition of, hey, the Christian's supposed to do blank, as opposed to the Bible always saying, Christian, this is who you are. Because of who you are, therefore, live in accordance with who you are. Live a life of gratitude to Christ. When you are thankful to God for what he has done, it is not a difficult or a burdensome thing to tell someone else who Christ is. It is not a burdensome thing to share who Christ is, to share love for another person, to be gracious with your children, to be kind to a person you don't know, to go out of your way, because it's not out of your way. That is your way because of who you are. All the list of do's and don'ts you always find biblically, it begins with who you are positionally in Christ, and because of that, this is the work of the Spirit in you. And so this morning, um, I'd like to ask the men to, some of the men to come forward as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. And I love having this as our text coming into coming to the Lord's table as simply everything is rooted in the simple thankfulness for what Christ has done, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. As we come to the Lord's table, we recognize and thank him for his work on our behalf. The work of salvation and redemption that we are wholly incapable of ever accomplishing for ourselves. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 